Welcome to the Behind the Bra podcast brought to you by Barbells for Boobs, where we are redefining the standard of care in breast health and improving the quality of life post-diagnosis. I'm your host, Ziana Hansen, and the founder of this incredible organization. Thank you for joining us. Right now, we are launching, we are on episode two of season two. So I'm really excited. Um, Our season two is the good series. So we are going to be talking to our guest moving forward, um, really with what the good is that has come out of breast cancer in their life. They'll be sharing that, but they'll also continue to share who they are, their treatment experience, how they found breast cancer, and all the gritty details that you want to hear. But really, this season is going to be talking about the good. So today on on the show, we have Amanda Carlson, a breast cancer survivor, athlete. She says former, but I believe she's still an athlete. Uh, She's a gymnast and an educator. And more importantly, she's a zoo mom. She's got a few different options uh, for you to select from for animals. I think she said a turkey. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. I think that we'll get into the zoo conversation a little bit later. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Thank you for coming on to season two to talk about the good. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So share with everybody really quick, kind of like, where are you from? Uh, Where did you grow up? Um, Take us kind of just through who you were the day before you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Okay. So I'm originally from Northern California. I was born in Petaluma up in Sonoma County. And I grew up for most of my childhood in Vacaville. And um, I had my mom and my dad. We had lots of animals, mostly dogs. (laughs) And um, yeah, I went to school there. And after I graduated from high school, I decided I wanted to go far away to college. And I ended up going to Um, Cal State Long Beach, and I went there for music performance, and I used to play violin, so I did that. Um, I should mention, growing up, um, I was a gymnast, and I used to be um, a competitive gymnast, and um, I coached when I was in high school, and that was a lot of fun and a really good workout. Um, Even as a coach? <laughs> yeah, because you're lifting kids or you have kids that like will be mid-skilled doing something and then they like collapse and you have to catch them. <laughs> so yeah, it can be a good workout. And then we always as a perk got to like tumble and um, just do a bunch of skills and stuff. So it's a lot of fun. Um, so I, that was a big part of my life. And then so I went off to college and there I, I focused on music performance. I was in orchestra and I did that for about a year and a half. And um, during my first year of college, my mom got really sick. She had a massive heart attack and almost died. And that prompted me to kind of change my college path. And so I transferred to Sacramento State and I switched my major to education. And that way I could be more present 
for my mom, help take care of her, and just be more present with family life. So I went on to graduate with my bachelor's and my master's from Sacramento State. And I worked as a teacher for a number of years. And eventually, I ended up down in Temecula, where I live now. Um, I originally came down here to work on my doctorate. And I got a good portion of the way through that before things were going down with my parents' health again. And my dad was getting sicker and was having to start dialysis. And um, he was in end stage of renal failure for quite some time. And so I was spending a lot of time having to go back and forth to take care of my parents. And that was... I didn't mind doing it. I would do anything for them, but it was also kind of a, a stressful component um, to have to drop things on a moment's notice to go help. Um, so I did that. And while I, have, I was doing... I have, I have so many questions already. <laughs> so I feel like we've been like up and down the California coast. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> during this time. Um you know, coming to, to, I mean, I'm from Long Beach. So when you say Cal State Long Beach, just made my heart pump a little bit. Um, <laughs> just, just as my, my, my heart is smiling. Um, and, and to have to, le- I, I don't know what your experience was like coming to Long Beach and, you know, coming, I don't, it, it, where you grew up, was it kind of a rural area? Was it city-like? Because Long Beach is a very eclectic place. And so what was that transition in your life like? So Vacaville, I think when I was there, had about 100,000 people. So it was still like a a big town. It's right in between Sacramento and San Francisco. So there's big cities around. So um, coming to Long Beach, it was definitely a little different because traffic and just taking longer to get (laughs) places. So there was a little bit of transition, but I love big cities. And so it just was like pretty natural for me. Yeah. Long Beach is the coolest city in the world. I'm not I loved it there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so you went, you got your degree in education and became a teacher. What what were you teaching? So I taught preschool. Um, I did that for a number of years. I used to... um, Let's see, I had a toddler program I worked with, and I had a preschool program, and I did that for quite some time. And I was a director of a school, and eventually I moved into educational leadership. So I supported um, a really large um, educational company that had before and after school and preschool and all kinds of programs like that. So I supported the Southern California region for that for a few years. And so it was a very busy job. I had 107 direct reports at one time. 107? Yeah, it was busy. (laughs) Direct? How is that even possible? (laughs) There's not enough time in the day. (laughs) There's really not. I worked way too many hours and I was under constant stress trying to get everything done and advocate for my team to improve conditions. So 
there was no such thing as an eight-hour day. It was more like a 14 to 16-hour day. And it was like seven days a week because you could never get things done. So how long was that? How long were you in that working in that capacity? I, I feel like that's job. only a short – like I, I'd be like a weekend. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, uh <laughs> – uh, it's not going so well yeah it was hard yeah when I applied for this job I thought it was just going to be in one county but they when I after I was on board they're like by the way there's this and there's this and that so like all right challenge accepted I guess um but I did this for I want to say three years Mm -hmm. so I definitely, like the last six months that I was there, it was getting increasingly more stressful because there was more and more things that needed to be done. And I felt like I couldn't do my job and my doctorate program. And I could just feel like the stress in my arms, like I could feel my blood like moving up and down in my arms. And I just wanted so bad to do a good job and to make a difference for my teaching staff that was all over and just better for the children and everything. But it just was, you couldn't do it all. You just had to like, if there was like five of me, maybe, but it was just, it was too much. Wow. And so what, um, what were you getting your doctorate in? Education. And education. Wow. I love how you just like so delicately just talk about these things that, you know, I don't even have a bachelor's degree, Amanda. So (laughs) you're so accomplished and educated and have done some amazing things. Like you just talk about it so just humbly. (laughs) Like, so I I oversaw 107 people. (laughs) You're like, no, I just did this. So I taught a little bit. That's how you explain it. (laughs) Wow. That's a, um, that's a path. I mean, what was that? A total of 10 years of your life that you just described from moving to Long Beach all the way up until you got to Temecula? I think something like that. Wow. Yeah. So let's get into the juicy part. Juicy. <laughs> Where were you at? What did you like? Were you in Temecula? Where were you at in that, in your career and your life the day before breast cancer? So, um, so this is a bit interesting. So I was in Temecula and um, if I back up just a little bit, um, the company that I worked for, they were doing like massive layoffs and I ended up being one of the people that was laid off along with some of my teammates. And I am actually pretty thankful for that because it was a very stressful job and, it was a good experience, but it was stressful. So it gave me time to heal from all of that. And I was able to focus on my health. And I made that entire year um, after that had happened, becoming self-employed and starting different businesses and focusing on losing like the weight that I had gained during that job and just going back to gymnastics and getting fit and finally taking time to seeing doctors and making sure everything was good. So um, I had a couple other cancer scares before this one happened 
And the last six months before, um, before I was diagnosed, things got kind of stressful, like really, really stressful, actually. <laughs> my grandmother had passed away and she was my last living grandparent. We were very close and that was really hard. And um, just a lot of other stress was going on in my life at that time. And so um, I had to get checked out because I had a weird spot on my back that it wasn't quite cancer, but it could have been if I had left it. So I had that. And then um, I had to go to the dentist and there was like a spot in my mouth that I had to get checked out and biopsied. And luckily that ended up being nothing. And then, um, I had to get a MRI for my back and my hips because I, I used to run all the time and I tore my hip and I'm like, I can still run a half marathon with a torn hip. That's no big deal. <laughs> and that just kind of made things worse. So then my doctor had me go get um, an MRI. And then they found this like mass on my ovary in the MRI. And so then they finally, they got me set up with an OBGYN and I had to get testing done for that, but that they don't think it's anything, which is good. And then, so my, my doctor was telling me, we should get you in for your yearly well woman's appointment. That's important. But she was so booked out at this time. I remember having to wait until February of 2019 before I could have that appointment. Um, so life was going on as normal. I was working. I finally was back into gymnastics again. And there was a local trampoline park. So I would go there and flip around and do stuff like that. And I was back to running and working out all the time. And I was in probably like a really good fitness spot in my life, not quite the best because I was kind of in a recovery plane. And then I went in for my yearly well woman's appointment. And when she was doing the breast exam, she was spending a lot of time on one side. And so I ended up looking over at her and she had like this really concerned look on her face. And then she asked me, did you know about this? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, you have a lump. And I knew just by the, the look on her face that something was wrong. So I'm pretty young to get breast cancer. I was 32 at the time. Like I just turned 32. And um, she advocated for me to get a mammogram. So I had to wait, I think about a week to go in for my mammogram. And I remember going in and everyone seems very surprised that I was there because before I got sick, I used to look way younger than my age. So people used to often think I was in my like early 20s when I was actually 32 and didn't think I belonged there. And they tried to reassure me, oh, you're going to be just fine. It doesn't run on because I have family history on the paternal side. So they were like, oh, it's just it's going to be fine. You're not going to have anything. So I remember doing the mammogram and then also I'm going to do like more imaging that I thought was probably normal. And I just remember seeing her facial expression change to like deep concern. And then they took me for an ultrasound. And I remember at that point, um, 
they kept coming back for more and more imaging. And I could hear the two technicians whispering to each other, oh, this is so sad. This is so sad. I was like, oh, crap. There's something wrong. Yep. And you were and you were all by yourself. I was all by myself. Did you go yeah. – like were you in your head going into that? Were you like – did you have a sense that breast cancer – like that you – did you ever think that you had breast cancer? Like what was your gut telling you? I thought there could be something wrong because – in my experience of doctors, usually they don't believe me and they send me away and say, you're fine, you're young, go home. Mm-hmm. But they weren't doing it this time, so I knew something was not right. Um, and I have had family in, that have had breast cancer, so I knew in the back of my mind that this could possibly be something that could happen to me, but not at 32. <laughs> no, yeah, of course so, not. Jeez. Yeah, so they were doing more imaging and then they left the room and then they came back and said the doctor wanted more imaging so they were doing more and then the radiologist came in and she did her own imaging and they were speaking in like words that I didn't know what it meant and they were really spending a lot of time on the left side which is where my tumor ended up being and I remember finally just asking is something wrong mm-hmm. and she told me yes but I'm going to finish what I'm doing and I'm going to wrap it up in a package for you and tell you what's going on and I just like started bawling at that point I just knew so at once that was over with she told me that there was something very suspicious and it looked like it was malignant and that I would need to come back in for a biopsy. And she told me that that couldn't stay in my body. It would have to come out. Um, And I just remember asking her, am I going to die? And she told me she didn't know. And I came back. I had to wait for a biopsy. I had to wait for my insurance to approve it. It took 10 days to come back in. And... The biopsy was not very fun because, <laughs> you know, you're getting stabbed in the chest and you can hear the biopsy thing clicking inside your body, which is very weird. And so they took the tissue sample and that was March 14th. And they told me it could take up the two weeks to get my results back. And... I tried my best to live life as normally in that time. And so I had flown back up to spend time with my parents because I knew I needed to help take care of them in case I couldn't come back for a while. And March 22nd, um, around 5 p.m. on a Friday, it's always Friday at like 5 p.m., I got a phone call, not from uh, Breastlink, which is where I had my stuff done, but from my primary care doctor's nurse's assistant or something who knew nothing of my case and told me my diagnosis. And she told me that I had ductal carcinoma, which is actually not what I really did have, and told me, this is a good kind of cancer. If I had to get cancer, I'd pick this one. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So. And what was like, what were the next things that happened after that, after that initial phone call? Like, where were you? Who were the, like the first people that you called and informed 
um, after hearing this news? So I was with my parents at their house when it happened. Um, I told my mom right away and she was devastated. She didn't think it was going to be a thing. She thought it was just going to be a cyst. I told my dad and he seemed like stunned about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I called my best friend, Sarah, and um, we talked and then I knew that this would get out and I wanted to make sure that I did it on my own terms. So I reached out to my aunt who had had breast cancer and told her what was going on. And she was a great support through the whole thing. And I told um, a bunch of family members that I wanted them to hear it from me first before going public about it. Wow. And from your medical side, from your medical team, what were the next steps that they did? So here's where things get interesting. Um, There was a lot of waiting that happened. Just so much waiting. Um, I finally got a call. Or no, I didn't get a call. I had to go in and meet my, my surgeon. And this is probably about a week after everything had happened. And she told me my real diagnosis, which was um, the, what is it, the invasive ductal carcinoma, I think, and called poorly differentiated, which just, I guess, means it grows fast and random. Um, And they couldn't tell me what stage I was at that point because I had to do more testing. So I met with her and then I had to meet with an oncologist and um, this oncologist um, had no bedside manner and I wanted to find out like what the plan was because at this time I didn't know I would have to do chemo or anything, but I would have to once I talked to everybody. But this oncologist didn't really do anything. She basically was like, shame on you. You must have been like taking a lot of soy supplements and soy products to do this. Um, and I were trying to decide like, do I have surgery first or do I have... Do so I, your oncologist blamed soy? Yeah. <laughs> yep. I feel like I I feel like I've heard it all now. I really, really, yeah. Really can't believe that your oncologist would tell you something so crazy. It was well. She knew that, like, because um, I'm I'm vegan, and so I think she probably didn't agree with my food choices. I guess, and so seemed tried to say like. I was taking like soy supplements, which I wasn't. It was weird. It was so weird, but it gets weirder. <laughs> yes, please. Continue. Um, huh? <laughs> What's the phone number? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, um, but then she told me this was very, very, very bad and that my cancer was very, very aggressive. And because I was very young, this was very, very bad because it would come back. Even after we treated it, it was very, very bad. And she wouldn't really answer any of my questions until I went home and read a manual. And and that was really frustrating. And I wanted to know, like, do I have chemo first or do I have surgery? Because 
I am smaller in the boob department and I didn't want to like lose too much boob because I knew like up front I wanted to do a lumpectomy if that was an option. And she walks over to me, flips up both my boobs and I'm like fully dressed at this point. Goes, yep, you're very small. Like it should have been like, is it because of soy? (laughs) Soy make my breast small? (laughs) It was so crazy. And, and I like, she wouldn't answer any of my questions. There was no follow up. And she just said, we'll see you in a month. And I walked out of there, like bawling my eyes out because I felt like she just like written my death sentence. So some miracle happened and I got switched to an amazing oncologist who took things really seriously. And because the way my insurance works and the way everything is here, my surgeon and my oncologist were two separate companies. Hmm. So um, I had to go in and do genetic testing to make sure I wasn't a carrier of any of the genes and everything was negative, which was good. Um, I had to do a, a breast MRI to see the extent of the disease. And I had to do a, a CT scan to make sure that it hadn't spread to any of my nearby organs. Because at that time, we didn't know what stage things were. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I was getting so many migraines, I had to do a brain MRI to make sure there was nothing up there either. Which, good thing there wasn't. And then I had to do like an echocardiogram on my heart um, to make sure everything was good there. It so, sounds like you had a total like 360 like transformation and treatment team and medical team. Like, yeah. And I think this is really important to talk about. If, if you are in a situation where you don't feel like your medical needs are being met, like, and I, honestly, if a doctor told me that, I would be like, hey, thank you for your time. And I would leave. Because I, I, you know, I think that we all can identify when we're being belittled or when we just kind of, you know, when something doesn't feel right and that, and I'm sure you felt this talking to this oncologist, Mm -hmm. like I would not want anybody responsible for my care that would banter me the way that this woman did, you know? And so I'm, I'm thankful that, you know, I don't know really what created that change. I know you said like the health, your health insurance change. But if anybody is in a situation where they don't, they don't trust their healthcare provider, like, mm-hmm. be, please do me a favor and keep it moving. Like, just, yeah, don't be afraid to advocate like, for yeah, yourself. Don't be afraid, yeah, like advocate for yourself. And if you can't or don't know how, email me. My email is z at barbellstreams.org and, and, and I will walk you through how to give somebody the middle finger and move on with your life. <laughs> I just thought it was important because it sounds like just even hearing some of the tests you you have now under your new care provider, very extensive. Like mm-hmm. she went above and beyond, in my opinion, because um, you know a lot of a lot of oncologists won't even go to a capacity of getting a brain scan. Like a, that's a like congratulations on finding a better healthcare team. Like that's amazing. She was amazing. I really felt very comfortable with her and trusted her guidance and appreciated that she was in communication with my surgeon to make the best decision possible for what needed to happen for my care. And so 
One of the fun things about, well, not so fun, but when you're young, you have to, they recommend that you go see a fertility doctor. And my insurance doesn't cover any of it. And it would have been almost like $10,000 if I would have done treatment. But I found out I wouldn't have been a good candidate because my breast cancer was estrogen positive. And because of how aggressive my particular cancer and the grade of tumor, it was going through fertility treatment could have made my cancer go from um, the stage it was to like stage four is what I was told. So I didn't want to do that. Um, and then I had to go in and do port surgery. And I remember going in for that. That was the first surgery I ever had. And um, like I had no scars on my body except for one fun rollerblading accident. <laughs> but like I was going to have a scar on my body and I've never had that. And I had my port surgery done and I had to do like a lot of dental work because I was told that um, if there's bacteria in your teeth, it can get into your blood system. And if you're immunocompromised from going through chemo, it could kill you. So I had to do like a few root canals and a lot of fun dental work before I could start. And then I've never heard every- this. Out of all the episodes I've, I've, all, out of all of our shows, I've never heard of a dental procedures before treatment. That's why. Yeah, they, I had to do like marathon dental work. That's like what the I'm last... saying, like your care team was extensive. Like, <laughs> I have yeah. not heard one woman say that there was dental care need um, prior to treatment. Yeah. Awesome. So I did that. And then I officially began chemo on uh, May 17th of 2019 and they had prescribed to me 16 rounds of chemo. I had to do the four rounds of AC or the Red Devil and then Mm -hmm. 12 of Taxol. And so I, I was never really too afraid of the cancer. I was more afraid of the chemo because of how sensitive I knew my immune system was. And I thought if I was to die, um, the chemo would might be what would do it. And I had a really hard time on chemo because I thought going into it, I was going to be able to work full time. And, you know, I might have a couple of bad days, but it completely knocked me on my butt. And... I was in the hospital five times and during like the first portion of the chemo, that AC chemo, I was in a wheelchair for a while because I couldn't even stand on my own without like going to fall over for part of it. Um, And my insurance and things, one of the things that kept happening in like in my situation is there was a corporate office that handled all of the um, ad- approvals for procedures or chemo and things. And a lot of times they would put in the wrong coding so my stuff wouldn't get approved. And I'd have to spend a lot of time on the phone advocating for myself and making sure it got fixed. But there is a shot that they give you um, to prevent you from going neutropenic. And mine didn't get approved. And I ended up having, because my white blood cell count was like one, they said, 
I had to go to the hospital and hope that I could get the shot there, which shouldn't happen. Um, so I ended up having the AC chemo was really hard on me. I had a lot of like extreme dehydration where my veins would kind of go flat and my body, like my endocrine system just couldn't hold on to fluids. And so even though I would drink a lot of water, I was constantly dehydrated. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like incredibly sick and weak. And at one point, like all I could do was like vomit (laughs) and end up having to go to the hospital for that. And um, here's where I guess things get a little more dark, um, if you want me to go into all that. Um, I ended Let's up go sleep- dark before we go good. Okay. Because <laughs> these are like, these are the weird things. We're going to come out of this. We're going to come yeah. out. We're going to talk about all all the good things that have happened since. Yes, it gets better, I promise. <laughs> it's important to hear the dark side before we can really bring the light in, right? So yeah, let's, mm-hmm. let's get dark. So I got really, really sick with the whole, like I was so weak. I couldn't even lift my own head up without feeling like I ran a marathon and I was constantly dehydrated. So I ended up being hospitalized and, um, they, my, cause my stomach was like so sour from everything. They gave me a medication and ended up having an anaphylactic reaction to it. Um, they had to reverse it. So I just remember my throat closing up, couldn't breathe. Um, I like broke out in red splotches all over my entire body. And then they reversed it and everything eventually was okay. Um, and then like maybe a week or two later, um, I just remember feeling like I was going to fall over and I was trying to walk. Like I would still, I walk dogs part time. And so I had one client that I kept because I was able to work their schedule around my chemo to where I I was on my stronger days. So I'm walking this dog and I just couldn't breathe. I felt like I was going to fall over. I just, every step was so difficult and I didn't know what's going to happen but I thought maybe I was just dehydrated again because that's what always happened and so I went afterward after done I was done walking the dog I went to see my oncologist and then they sent me to the ER immediately and then I found out I had a pulmonary embolism and it was caught just in time and the doctor had told me had I waited I probably would have had a heart attack or a stroke and died yeah I was gonna say those are you need to get those yeah catch those really quick yeah like it had just entered like the very bottom of my lung so it was almost too late but still like they were able to catch it so Once I healed from that, I was back into chemo, made it through all of the AC chemo, and that was like a huge celebration because that stuff was brutal. And then I started on Taxol. And so you do 12 rounds of Taxol. And I was on probably the, this is the scariest day of my treatment, was round seven of my treatment. And I suddenly remember feeling like my back was going to snap in half. I couldn't breathe and everything went black. And 
I just felt like I was fading and I ended up having an allergic or anaphylactic reaction to the Taxol chemo. And I just remember like I could feel my body dying and they acted quickly and gave me some sort of medication through my port, I think, to stop things. And I guess I was hooked up to like an oxygen tank. And I remember in the moments where my body, like everything was fading around me, someone had their hand on both my hands and it was so warm. That was the only thing I could feel. And that was the only thing I focused on to try to stay with everybody. Um, Cause I could feel myself going and then they were able to bring me back. But then like, after that happened, like once I realized what it felt like to almost die, hardly anything scared me at that point. And I knew the bravest thing I would ever do was have to continue this chemo that almost just killed me. Um, and I still had rounds eight through 16 to get through at that point. And I would go to chemo and I would have like allergic reactions each time, but they weren't like that other time. And they would have to up my steroids to like some crazy high amount to keep it where it didn't do what it did before. So that was rough. And I don't want to ever do that again. (laughs) And, but it really wreaked a lot of like havoc on my body. I, just became so weak from all the, the complications. And then I finished chemo October 2nd of 2019. I was so excited. I was so happy about all that um, to ring the bell and get the heck out of there. <laughs> and I had and about, that, that like closed that treatment, that closed up treatment for you? Was that all no. the treatment that was required with chemo? Yeah. <laughs> No, I had for chemo um, that finished like the intravenous chemo, and I got a month off to heal, and then I had my surgery on November fifth. And there's a lot. I don't know if um, some of the pre procedures have been talked about, but if you have a lumpectomy, like they have to like shoot you around the nipple with this thing to la- to oh. map out your lymphatic system. And then you have to have wires inserted around your tumor. And then you have to have like a quote unquote, like gentle mammogram, if that's even a thing to make sure that the, these wires are like attached around the tumor so they can take it out. Um, so there's that. And then you go on for surgery And um, I had a lumpectomy and the senatal lymph node removed, even though they knew it was benign, they just wanted to make sure. And then at that time, so I had found out I was officially stage 2B, but they were able to shrink my tumor down to stage 1A, um, which was cool. Um, And then, um, so I... I had some time to recover and I remember like two weeks after surgery, I 
asked them if it was safe for me to fly again, and they said yes. So I had this feeling that something bad was going to happen, and I needed to be there for my family. Just something wasn't right. And I mentioned earlier my dad was going to dialysis, and he wasn't well, and the dialysis wasn't working anymore. So when I flew home, I didn't know at that time, because I'm in between treatment, I still have to go through radiation, that I was going to spend this time caring for my dad while he was in hospice care at home until he passed. So. I'm so sorry to hear that. Yeah, that was really hard. It was probably one of the hardest things I I had to do, but I would I wanted to make sure I was there for him. Mm-hmm. And what made things hard, one of my dogs passed away like not even an hour after my dad did. Oh my gosh. And it was just like, oh my gosh. It was really hard. And the hardest thing is like I knew like my mom, my mom's not well and I knew I had to be strong for her to take care of her and help her. And in two days, I had an appointment with the radiation oncologist to figure that out. And I had to fly home for that and figure out all of that. And so, like, as I'm dealing with, like, the loss of my dad and one of my dogs, you know, I have to start treatment and then I'm flying back when I can to help my mom pick up the pieces. So I went through radiation. Radiation was a lot easier on my body. I only had to do 20 rounds, um, which is a little bit less than what most people have to do. And during my last week of radiation, my mom got really sick. And she um, she's in like congestive heart failure, and she's not well. And end up having to be hospitalized. So I had to fly, like I would drive to radiation, go to radiation, drive to the airport, fly to Northern California, go to the hospital, be with my mom, um, stay there for the night, get up like at 4 or 5 a.m., drive back to the airport, fly home, go to radiation. And I had to do that for about a week for my last bit of treatment which was, it was exhausting, but I knew I had to step up and be there for my mom. And then I finished treatment on January 20th of 2020. Wow. That is a a journey. Thank you for sharing. And I'm so sorry for, you know, um, I think that loss during a time of your own loss is is like a double whammy. Um, I'm so sorry to hear of all that. I feel like you come out of treatment and then you hit COVID. Yeah. So I've, you know, as much as I want to say that COVID has been something hard on, you know, it's definitely been hard, uh, a hard thing for a lot of people and has made, created a lot of change for a lot of people. Um, let's start kind of talking about the good. And yeah. so, cause, cause for me, I've, 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 I feel like more good has come to my life from COVID and um, a lot of good has come to my life from breast cancer. And so for you, if you could just say one thing that's like so good in your life because of breast cancer. So probably one of the best 
outcomes from chemo, and this is something that I have come to understand is really rare. Before I had cancer, I had a lot of several like severe food allergies, and I had an autoimmune condition called Raynaud's, and chemo seemed to put all of that in remission, and I can eat whatever I want. <laughs> Whoa. That's crazy. I've never heard of this. <laughs> so you can eat all the soy you want. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that's, that's the weirdest like- thing. <laughs> so like the way I found out, like I don't recommend what I did to others, but I'll share. Um, I used to have a like a wheat and gluten allergy. And um, whenever like someone would bring in like – like a fried chicken thing, like I, I, like I would break out in like hives on my chest from just the smell of it, or if like somebody was cooking pasta that was wheat based, um, I would break out. And I remember my boyfriend was cooking pasta, and usually like whenever like the wheat would be like in the air, I guess, um, my chest would start breaking up and my throat would start itching, and it would like feel like it was closing a bit. And then one day that didn't happen. So I thought, huh, that's strange. I wonder if I can eat it. And so I decided to think, well, I got all this Benadryl in my system. I might as well try to eat pizza and see what happens. And um, it didn't do anything to me. So I was like, hey, this is so cool. Like for the first time in my life, I can go um, to a restaurant and order anything on the menu. And I've never been able to do that before. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, kind of, you know, um, I think that's something that I take for granted for sure. Like I'm very fortunate. I don't have any food allergies. And so I can my whole life I've been able to order off, <laughs> off of any menu and not any issues. So I can imagine the freedom that that must have brought for you. Yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners today? This has been so fun, like learning more about. I feel like you've had such a unique treatment perspective and uh, even just the experience of how your care team took care of you and even having a change and advocating and Mm -hmm. uh, even just coping with loss and your own loss and, you know, being a caregiver for your family. Is there anything else you want to share with our community, whether it's good or any advisement during treatment? Sure. I think one of the biggest things that I learned through this whole thing is that it is okay to take up space in this world and to advocate for yourself and that you are your most important relationship because you are the only person who is with you for the entirety of your life. And before you can help others, you have to be able to help yourself and learn how to ask for help. It just everything, my perspective on everything has changed because of it. Wow. That's great. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. How can our listeners find you and learn more about you? Are you on the Instagrams? Like where, where's your, where are you at in socials? So, um, I'm primarily on Instagram and Facebook for Facebook. I don't really accept people unless I know them, but Get out Instagram, of here. <laughs> <laughs> Get out of here. I'm same way. Facebook. I'm like, no, leave me alone. Instagram but is for, for the world. Instagram, like I've been pretty public about my breast cancer journey on there, and it's my love letter to life. Um, and I have my links to like everything that I do on there. 
Awesome. Well, there you go. You have it. Um, thank you so much for. I'm following you now. Why wasn't I following you? <laughs> now, now. Oh. Make sure you follow her, my love letter to life. Um, Amanda, thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, your insights, your words have been very educational to our community. Uh, so thank you so much for all that you brought to today's show. Um, big thank you to our team that makes this podcast actually happen. Um, remember, you are the most important person in your life. Lessons from Amanda Carlson today. thank you so much for having me on of course this was a blast thank you so much um and that is lights out for the behind the bra podcast